Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The reminder that that Christ will come again to judge the world with equity. This is good news for us. He also does remind us of our need to confess our sins. And so we turn to Luke chapter 18 for the call to confession this morning. Jesus' parable about the persistent widow. Luke 18. Hear God's word. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Thus far the reading of God's word. This, uh, the first verse here convicts us that we ought always to pray and never to lose heart. And more conviction follows. We tend to see God sometimes as an unjust judge, someone who's selfishly denying us justice. So let's confess our prayerlessness at the times that we lose heart or give up. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Please kneel if you're able to. this service. It is your word to which we respond. Uh, We respond in prayer, in confession, in worship, uh, and here in this time of consecration in our service. Uh, Lord, may it be so once again that we respond to your word with all that we are in every part of our lives, conformed, reformed to the image of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. 1 Samuel 30, hear the word of God. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives Their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 
Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail, recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men who were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and the four hundred men, for two hundred stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Bezor. Then they found an Egyptian in the field, and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of, of a cake of figs, and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind, because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites, in the territory which belongs to Judah, and of the southern area of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me, nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Bezor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward. He made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who were in Bethel and who were in Ramoth of the south, those who were in Jatir, those who were in Aror, those who were in Sifmoth, those who were in Eshtemoah, those who were in Rakai, those who were in the cities of the Jeremielites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Hormah, those who were in Chorshan, those who were in Athak, those who were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. 
And God's people said, Amen. Well, we're in that part of the story, right? At the end of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 2 Samuel, where things go badly awry. Uh, but in the midst of it, we learn here that the son of David, David himself, delivers us from sin. He shows himself a just and a merciful king in how he gives his people gifts. That's kind of the main point today, the, the distress, the deliverance, and then the, the giving of gifts. Those three, three sections. So let's look first at the distress this morning. Remember the story here. David has been summoned to battle with the Philistines against Israel, right? And uh, the Philistines reject him. They say, no, you're not going to fight uh, uh, with us. You'll probably turn against us in the battle, which he probably would have. Uh, so they send him home. Uh, home for David at this point is Ziklag uh, in Philistine territory. Uh, and remember now the long history with Amalek. Right? Amalek attacked Israel after the Exodus. Uh, God later uh, told Saul to destroy the Amalekites, 15 chapters before this, and Saul didn't. David has been raiding them off and on, and they are now here probably retaliating. Uh, the Amalekites uh, attack the weak and the defenseless. That's from our reading in De Deuteronomy 25. Uh, when Israel came up out of Egypt, the stragglers who were weaker left behind, Amalek was raiding from the rear, uh, killing and taking their stuff. Uh, so that's one of the hallmarks of Amalekites. They attack the weak and the defenseless. And they do the same thing here. While David and most of his men have left town to go fight the, the, with the Philistines, the, the, the Amalekites come in and uh, uh, destroy the town and take all the stuff. So David now, coming back from the Philistine uh, army mustering, after three days' march uh, for 60 miles back home, they find burnt rubble and families kidnapped and probably dead. Now this, it, the way it's written kind of underplays this, but this is about as bad as it gets. Right? My city is burned down. Whatever band of brothers I left to defend Ziklag is wiped out. My house and my property are all gone. My family is kidnapped and maybe dead. Wow. And this is a real low point for David. Saul had exiled him from Israel. The Philistines had dismissed him. The Amalekites now plunder his stuff. To top it all, his own allies, his men who ate bread, now lift up the heel against him. Psalm 56. And they threaten to stone him. This is distress. <laughs> and, and the Bible, again, often does this. It'll, it'll give us a story of the ultimate, extreme kind of distress. Think of Job, same kind of thing, right? And in that way, any distress that we face in life, um, we can look to Scripture and find relevance in Scripture, right? Some of you, I know, are facing some serious distress, hurt and anguish in your life right now. And Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. If things are going okay for you right now, then remember that God will send trials into your life at some point. So the reality of distress here is the first uh, point. Uh, whatever your distress might be, David lifted his voice and wept until he had no strength left. And the son of David weeps with you too, as he did at Lazarus's tomb. He keeps your tears in his bottle. Uh, David said in Psalm 56. He knows your every sorrow. He knows the cause. 
Today you may still be weeping in Ziklag before the great deliverance, seeing only burned houses, lost dreams or hopes. But remember that Jesus is mighty to save, to deliver, and he will do it. So the reality of the distress. Another aspect to the distress is the line of promise. Remember, we, in our covenant theology, we, we look to Scripture to see God making promises to a series of people, right? Adam first, Abraham next, uh, Moses, David. Uh, there's a line of promise, and it's also a, a biological line that leads uh, genealogically to Jesus. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He's the son of David. So that line of promise here is threatened, and that's a constant theme and pattern throughout the Old Testament especially. God makes a promise to Abraham, right? Uh, the, the, the coming one, is gonna, the, the line of promise is going to go through your child, Isaac. And then the next thing God does is he asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. The line of promise is threatened. Right? That goes on throughout Scripture and other places. Um, think of the exile, when Israel is taken into exile. Right, The, the king of Judah, uh, who is the ancestor of Jesus, is carted off to Babylon, and he's uh, dependent on this pagan king for his daily food. The line of promise threatened. Here you have the seed of David. David's family threatened, carted off by these Amalekites, uh, easily killed. These are Jesus' ancestors. This is, these are the, this is the family from which Jesus will come. That line of promise is threatened. But God providentially preserves them. And we see that fulfilled, of course, in Jesus himself, right? The promised one. Uh, not only is he threatened, uh, the night of Passover, he's deeply troubled in his soul. And then he's actually cut off from God's grace and fellowship on the cross. There's that threat to the line of promise pattern going on. A couple other things on distress, just to apply this. Uh, David grieves and he weeps in his distress, right? I think that's verse 4 or 5. Uh, but the grief of others, uh, verse uh, 6, I think it is, turns destructive. Let's kill David, right? Same thing happens to uh, Israel when they are leaving Egypt, and then they're trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. All of the people turn against Moses, and they wanted to stone him. Same thing, right? We look for someone to blame when bad things happen. Uh, and we have to be careful. We forget God sends us trouble to teach us. Uh, Matthew Henry puts it well. He says, when we're in trouble, we fly into a rage against those who are the occasion of our trouble. While we overlook the divine providence, God's hand in the trouble, which would silence our passions and make us patient. And that's a really important point, and it's one I'll probably come back to over and over after this last crazy year. This is one way to apply this. Many of our civil leaders worsened the COVID crisis with their bad decisions, and we focus on that, and our tendency is just to be mad at our governor. We have the same kind of issue. We need to learn from distress, not just rage against it. And I... I grant there's definitely a political lesson to learn through all of this, but what was God doing sending us COVID? I kind of doubt that the main lesson was political. Uh, my hunch is it had more to do with our fear of death, our insecurity, our craving for safety, thinking that we can control every aspect of life when we can't. 
uh, we need to learn from distress, not just rage against it. So be careful not to fall into the trap of being one of David's men, who when things go awfully, we just lash out in rage and find somebody to blame. Uh, we learn from it. The right response is to strengthen yourself in God. And that's verse 6. Uh, that's what David does. And that's a, a wonderful uh, sentence there, end of, end of that first section. Strengthen himself in the Lord, Yahweh, his God. Let's focus on that for a few minutes here. Uh, first two things that this isn't, right? When you strengthen yourself in God, that, that isn't uh, just kind of a vending machine prayer thing that's going on. You know, Lord, help me. And bam, you feel better. That's not really what's going on. David's not doing the vending machine approach. And strengthening yourself in God also is not just lament or venting emotionally, right? They've already done that in verse 4, right? This is something different. And it starts with his God. Uh, the, the Old Testament especially, Scripture all, all over, but the Old Testament especially, the Hebrew, it, it's, um, it uses economy of language. It gets a lot said in a very little bit. And, and one big point going on here is where it says that he strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Not, not Yahweh God, not the Lord God, but his. And that's huge. Because the way that David is strengthened in God is by God being his God. Uh, in our circles, we uh, make critiques of individualism fairly often, and they're good and right. We have to uh, be wary of individualism. But that critique cannot undermine the need that we have for a personal relationship with Jesus. We need that. And that's what David uh, is drawing on here. And he's grounded in God's promises. Uh, the last time this kind of phrase is used in Samuel is when Jonathan meets David out in the wilderness. And Jonathan strengthened David. And the way he did that is by reminding David of God's promise that he would be the king. So that's a, a key thing that happens. We, we draw on a personal relationship with the Lord and we are reminded of God's promises. Uh, that's how David is being strengthened here. Uh, the story is told of uh, Andrew Bonar. He's a Scottish pastor and hymn writer from the 1800s. He had a routine in his daily life of meditating on Scripture in the afternoons. Uh, and one afternoon, uh, his uh, wife was going into labor, and he was meditating on Nahum chapter 1. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so... Uh, this is probably a, a, something from another age. I don't know that we would meditate on Scripture as our wife is going into labor these days in that way. But he did. Uh, and uh, later that same evening, his wife died in childbirth. And he wrote in his journal later, Little did I know how I would need that verse. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. That's what David's doing here. He's taking strength in his God, in his distress. And David prays in affliction. Psalm 56, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. And Jesus prayed in affliction in the garden of Gethsemane. The right response to distress is to strengthen yourself in God. Martin Luther 
did it as he panned and sang, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Strength and distress. So that's the, the first longest point for, for the message today, the distress that we face. The second thing that happens here is direction. From verse 7 to 15, David finds direction. And these things are linked, right? If you respond to distress in the right way, then you'll have a sense of what to do. And that's what David does. Uh, he, verse 7, he knows how to be a king. The first thing you do is you ask God for direction. He sends for the ephod, which is the, the divinely appointed way to seek guidance from God at the time. As a leader, David knows wisely that the best way to shepherd people who are resisting you or hostile is to provide an alternate action plan that's endorsed by God. And that's what David does. He seeks direction from God and he gives it to others. All right, people, we're going to do this. That's what David does. So verse, uh, he, they go off to pursue uh, the Amalekites. Verse 9 and 10 is fascinating, this obscure thing about the slave that they find and leaving the troops behind. This all seems kind of uh, irrelevant. What, why are we getting all these details? Again, this, there's direction here. Uh, David treats the weak gently. He's got a third of his troops who are too tired to go on. He leaves them by the brook with the supplies uh, where the Amalekites would just would leave them to die. He's leaving them with the supplies. Uh, also, it's uh, contrasted with Saul. If you remember Saul, he pushes his army hard and doesn't let them eat. Uh, and Jonathan notes how uh, bad of a decision that was. So uh, David tr treats his own men gently. And then this Egyptian servant they find, he treats him gently, right? Uh, David has just left weak soldiers behind. Now he meets a weak servant uh, left by Amalek. David's in a hurry to recover his family. But he stops for this servant. He promises not to harm him. He gives him their precious little food. And the Egyptian notice he doesn't want to go back to his master, right? His Amalekite master left him for dead. He doesn't want to go back there. Uh, so we, we have that kind of situation. Many people are held captive uh, by sin today, by Amalekites, uh, by wickedness. And they need release. And sometimes they know it, but they don't know where to go. Go to David. Go to his son, Jesus. There you will find deliverance. That's my third D today. So we've got distress, direction, and then deliverance. Here's the actual battle, verse 16 to 20, where uh, the Amalekites are spread out carousing with all the stuff that they've stolen and, and taken from everyone. Uh, there's some interesting uh, parallels here, too, in Scripture. This is judgment coming upon them, right? Uh, and remember what Jesus says about the, what the end of the world will be like? It'll be like at the flood, when everybody was eating and drinking up until the very last minute, and then the flood comes. Same kind of thing here with the Amalekites. They're having a good old time. They think it's going to be great, and then the judgment. It's like Belshazzar and Daniel and his court feasting with the temple things. And the same night, they were overthrown. This is judgment. Uh, this is why I've uh, mentioned it a bit in the worship service so far. 
but you have uh, David here being a faithful Adam who protects and guards his wife from Satan's attacks, unlike the first Adam who let Eve fall. Deliverance. Uh, Heidelberg 1 puts it well. We talk about uh, the first few lines often. Our only comfort in life and death is that we are not our own. We belong in life and death to our faithful Savior. Later on in that answer, it says, Jesus delivered us from the tyranny of the devil. Deliverance. That's us. Delivered. Jesus goes to the cross to take us back from captivity. Just as David here recovers all that is his. The delivered give the deliverer credit. Verse 20. They say this is David's spoil. They say the reward is his. He says it too. This is what we're called to do. That we are uh, those who belong to Jesus. He's recovered us. So deliverance is the third D. And the last one is dividing the plunder. Uh, here are the, the last ten verses of the chapter. Uh, this is rather interesting. Again, David helps the weak. Right? Uh, David divides the spoil. And they get back to their 200 who had to stay back with the, with the baggage. And then, those, then the greediness comes out. Right? That now the Israelites almost turn into Amalekites. Well, we've got all this. I want to keep as much as I can for myself and party on. And David says, no, 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 no. We need to share this with all of our people. Right? The men with him want to become Amalekites, prejudicing against the weak. They had defeated them militarily, but they were losing the war in their hearts, in, in their worldview, which might be a good picture of our nation right now. Militarily uh, victorious, but becoming Amalekites within. Think of our destruction of the unborn. Uh, we care little for the weak and the vulnerable unless they can help us in some way. So David uh, rightly divides the plunder. And wanted to take a minute on that theme to talk about grace and works a bit. Uh, and this starts with saying, we recovered, we plundered. There's a contrast there, right? Verse 20, uh, everybody's saying, David did this. But then, a couple verses later, when they want to keep the stuff for themselves, they said, we did this, Right? Big difference. Hey, did David do this or did we do this? Uh, they said before it was David. Now they're going to take the credit. They quickly go from praising David and saying it's all his to disputing who got what and who earned it, and thinking that they know best how to divide their spoil. Right? Why does David have men like this as allies, we might ask, right? Well, you could ask the same of Moses with Israel or of Jesus with sinners like us. We get greedy and selfish. The answer is that God is patient with us to work out the sin that has messed up our lives. God counts us among his people before we're living up to the standard of righteousness for his people. It's grace. David's men were forgetting this. They wanted to deprive them uh, for not having gone as far as they did. Right? This is the whole 11th hour worker parable. It's the same thing. Now, now, granted, there is the principle that he who doesn't work shall not eat, right? How does that fit in? Aren't they appealing to that? Well, there are times we overapply that principle as an excuse to withhold mercy. And it says, he who will not work, right? But these men could not work. They had gone as far as they could. 
and God gives mercy. The, the uh, vineyard workers, they only worked in the vineyard for one hour of the day. But we often think that's because they were lazy. But it's not. It says right in the parable, nobody hired us. I, I, I could not find work. And, and they have mercy. So uh, they get the same reward as the frontline soldiers. And we can all talk about this uh, an awful lot. There's, all, there's political discussions to have. Aren't you going to get more of what you subsidize? If, if, you, if, if you give more than is earned, isn't that going to lead to more idleness and so on? Well, won't David get more people hanging around the baggage this way? Possibly. But then he'll know who is with him to serve him and who is there just for the physical reward. Jesus knows his men. He knows his people. He knows where we're abusing his grace, where we're, we're at the end of our rope, and we need mercy. So uh, this is also applies to the Lord's Supper, as we'll come to in a minute. It, it's, it's the right thing to do to give uh, to all and everyone there, because they're all one bread. They're all one body, 1 Corinthians 10. It's not right for some to feast while the rest sit here hungry. So that's the grace and works idea. David gives glory to God for the victory. His answer in verse 23 is just a wonderful answer. It, he gives glory to God for the victory. He reminds them that God gave them this plunder. Right? If, if you start by saying, this is David's plunder, and then the people start saying, this is our plunder, then David's going to respond by saying, this is God's plunder, which it is. It wasn't because of David's strength that none of their families died. That's something to remember. It does say that David recovered all. David did a great thing here, but he couldn't have done it without God's providence. Works will say, we recovered the plunder. Grace will say, God gave it to us. So that's uh, something for us to always remember, and I drive this point home even a bit more. Uh, don't, don't remember we have to repent of our virtues. Uh, whatever it is that you think it really sets you apart as a better Christian than others. And we all do this at various times with various things. So don't think that your conscientious piety or your particularly accurate theology or your extra reverent worship puts you closer to God than other Christians and you're earning that. Even assuming you're right, and I think on a lot of that you are because I'm here with you, right? But God gave that to you is the point. So grace isn't just an idea. It's not just a doctrine to uphold. It affects how you live, how you treat people. If you're truly imbibing grace into your bloodstream, as R.C. Sproul liked to say, you'll be gracious with the 11th hour worker. You'll be gracious with the week 200. Grace is what we all need every day. It's not just for our conversion, for our justification. It's, it's for every moment, every day in our lives. So David here, dividing the plunder, does so in a gracious way. He's being a king. He's, he's stewarding his resources. In verse 25, he's actually making laws now. He's not even the king yet, but he's legislating for Israel. D David is making laws like a king. He's repaying those who help him. Uh, the last part where it lists all the cities of Judah. This was a good and right thing to do. Remember, he's got extra plunder here, right? The uh, Malachites, they attacked not just Ziklag, but all over the place and got all that plunder. And then David took all of it 
So now he's got way more than just what he uh, started with. So he's giving of that to his friends in Judah. And that's something important, and I'll close with this point. Giving gifts like this, that looks backward and it looks forward. Many gifts that we give are like that. When you give someone a gift, you're recalling your friendship with them in the past. And there's also a note of hope there that this friendship will continue. That's, that's the general point. But look here, uh, David's gifts to these uh, Judeans. He, he's looking backward, saying, hey, you gave me refuge from Saul before, or you helped me out before, so now I'm helping you out. And the gift is also looking forward, because <laughs> David is the potential new king, right? Kings give gifts, right? They give rewards. So that's what David is doing here. Uh, the, definite, the, the gift co- goes with a message with it, right? David uh, sends a message. Here's a present for you. This is verse 26. From the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So David defines himself as one who has defeated and plundered Yahweh's enemies. And that's what he's done. And, that, and this plunder is the proof. Now, believe it or not, all of that applies very directly and closely and clearly to the table before you. The Lord's table is a gift from Jesus. He has delivered us. We are the plunder, right? And and you see the proof before you on the table. Gifts look backward and forward. The Lord's table looks back to the cross, to the point of deliverance. It looks forward to the consummation of all things. Jesus won the victory. He plundered the strong man. He gave gifts to his people generously. So receive his blessings gratefully. Use them as he directs. And just an aside at the very end here, there's a lot of emphasis in this chapter on David's men. David's men, repeated throughout. Those who are with David enjoy his benefits. And and that's the, the call for us. Are we with the son of David? Is your lot cast with him? Jesus has delivered us from sin. He shows himself a just and a merciful king in how he gives his people gifts. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for uh, how on every page, in every chapter, however obscure, uh, you show us your son Jesus in all of his glory, his majesty, his compassion, his grace, his deliverance. Lord, uh, show us uh, in our lives where we can be more gracious with others, how we can protect the weak and the vulnerable. Help us, Lord, in every area of our lives uh, to pursue your grace and your truth, uh, to seek to honor uh, the one who has delivered us, to give him the credit instead of taking it for ourselves. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Corinthians 10 verse 17 for we though many are one bread and one body for we all partake of that one bread David was careful to give the weak among his people their share of his plunder his gifts and Jesus does the same if we are counted among his people we should receive his gifts whether we are rich and can afford wine or not we must share together as one body in Christ as long as we are faithful to him 
Now, faithfulness is not determined only by how much we understand about Jesus. Faithfulness to discern the body of Christ is not passing a theology test. It means not callously excluding God's people from the supper just because they are poor or less knowledgeable. If we can't partake until we fully discern the body, then none of us will partake. No, we extend grace to those among us who don't understand yet. So just because your three-year-old doesn't understand and express his faith as fully as I do, doesn't mean the son of David keeps back his portion because of his weakness. No, he strengthens, he, he, your three-year-old, he needs the strength of this food to nourish his faith to fullness. Is he faithful according to his age and ability? Yes. Does he sin? Yes. Does he realize the full horror of his sin and fully repent? No. Do you? The Lord's requirement for coming to this table is baptism and faith according to your ability to understand. God is merciful to give the weak and the helpless what they don't yet understand. He treats us as his before we can appreciate what that means. So come and welcome to the Lord's table. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. As you eat the bread and drink the wine with us, uh, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in God's sovereign mercy, that you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Come and welcome. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.